All right, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 12, if you want to open your Bibles there. We will continue in our study through the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12. As you're making your way there, by way of introduction, um, you know, when I turned 18 years old, it was on actually my birthday, May 30th, when I was 18, uh, I went to work uh, at uh, a, a job that would become my career. I started driving an ambulance. And at 18 years old, that is a cool job. I'll just tell you that. You get to drive 50 miles an hour on the wrong side of the road. You get to blow through stoplights, like, you know, and you get paid for it. It's awesome, you know. But it was also really stressful because I was stationed in downtown Los Angeles. I worked the greater Los Angeles area all over the place and in the South Bay predominantly later on. But when I first started, they put me in L.A., well, I don't know L.A. I don't know the roads there. This is back in the Stone Age before there's GPS and all of that. And so they would dispatch me to a call, and I would have to look it up on a map book, which is fine if you know where you are. But I had no idea where I was, so I'd have to look up two addresses. I'd have to look up where I was, and then I'd have to look up where I was going, and then I'd have to try and plot a course and just, you know, and all of that, like, we need you there right now. So it's super stressful. You know, it's not like when you're running lights and sirens, you can stop and ask somebody for directions, you know. Uh, super stressful thing. And I tell you that story by way of introduction because what I needed was the you are here. You know, when you go to the mall, you see the big sign and you see the map and they've got this handy thing that says, you are here, you know, and it's just sort of that bigger picture. And then that's what I needed then. And Revelation chapter 12, really, that's what it gives for us. It's sort of the focus zooms back and we get the bigger picture of what's going on. That uh, the tribulation is a culmination of, of a spiritual battle. One that began in heaven with Satan and God and it now extends to the earth with, with, uh, with Satan attacking God's people. Paul talked about this dynamic to the Ephesians. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And this is sort of the big idea, the battle that we're going to be looking at here. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now, Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and it's written with uh, you know, imagery uh, as a, a central part of it. So the first question here is, what's this image all about? Thankfully, the Bible gives us uh, the definition of what this vision is. We read about it in Genesis 37, um, where God spoke to Joseph in a dream. Um, and, and the account goes this way. It says, Then he, speaking of Joseph, dreamed still another dream, and he told it to his brothers, and he said, Look, I've dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. And so he told it to his father Jacob <clears throat> and his brothers, and his father rebuked him, and he said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come down uh, or come to bow down to the earth? Before you, So Jacob does us a favor there. He gives us uh, the interpretation of that dream, and that dream gives us the interpretation of this image here in Revelation 12, verse 1. Joseph's brothers represent, are represented by the stars. Joseph's parents are represented by the sun and the moon. 
And so we have here our interpretation that this is speaking of the nation of Israel there in verse 1. Um, that a woman, Israel, clothed with the sun, the moon uh, under her feet, and her head a garland of 12 stars. Verse 2. Then, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, what child did the nation of Israel give birth to? Jesus. Yeah, they're, they're, it's the right answer in junior high to any question. It's the right answer here. Jesus is the one... Uh, who Israel gave birth to. Isaiah said this, he says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now clearly, this is a picture of Satan, right? He's he's thrown to earth uh, with a third of the stars of heaven. Um, This is a reference to fallen angels consistent with you know, accounts in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 of, G- of Satan being uh, cast out of heaven. He's red in appearance, which is associated with death. And we see him here standing before the woman as she gives birth, seeking to kill the child. And that's exactly what Satan did. After the wise men showed up looking for Jesus uh, and, and, and all, Satan leads Pharaoh to tell these wise men, well, hey, when you find him, Come back and, and tell me where he is so that I can go worship him as well. Well, they perceive, and the Lord reveals to them that he doesn't really want to worship them. Satan has moved in his heart to kill Jesus. And so what does Pharaoh do when the wise men don't come back? He says, hey, you know what? Go kill all of the, the Israelite babies two years old and under, right? And, and so there's, there's these, this effort of Satan to, just as it says here, to, to kill the child as soon as it was born. Now we have some other, by the way, in case you doubt that this is Satan, verse 9, when we get there, will tell us that it's Satan, him, name him by name, so we know for sure that this is Satan. But we have further descriptors here. It says that he, he it describes him as having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems, which is a, a royal crown. And, and the seven heads represent seven consecutive world empires. Uh, the empire of Egypt, the empire of, Sy- of Assyria, of Babylon, of Medo-Persia, of Greece, and of Rome. These six empires that have come and gone. And then the seventh empire that is yet to come, which is the future empire of Antichrist. And so that's the seven heads. The seven diadems, the royal crowns, these represent the power and the authority that God has allowed Satan to have here on the earth since the fall of man. And then you have these ten horns, and this is part of the prophecy that Daniel gave in Daniel chapter 7. It represents the kings who are going to rule under Antichrist. Uh, So verse 5, we continue, and it says, She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Now verse 5 has a lot compacted in it. All 33 years of Jesus' reign are represented there in in just that, that section, but it's actually much broader than that. Jesus' entire ministry is summarized by this one sentence 
Um, and and the, the, it's the summary of the bigger picture, and he names it here, of Jesus ruling the nations with a rod of iron. Now, now that, that word rule that's used there, it, it literally means shepherd. And combined with rod of iron, what it speaks of is the fact that Jesus' rule cannot be broken. In other words, despite all of Satan's efforts, him trying to kill Jesus when he was born, his efforts to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, his, his efforts to rile up the people to kill Jesus, even his ultimate success in, in deceiving Judas to betray Jesus and the religious leaders to put him to death, um, even all of that, all of his efforts failed when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 2. He said, having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. But when Satan is defeated, and listen, this is key for our lesson here today. When he's defeated, all of his efforts turn from trying to destroy Christ to trying to destroy God's people. That's, that's the sum total of his focus now. And so we, we move from verse 5 to verse 6, and there's a 2,000-plus year jump in the time frame here in this, in this, between this, the period of the end of verse 5 and now the beginning of verse 6. Um, it says uh, there in verse 6, when the, then the woman fled into the wilderness... So Israel flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. This is looking now, fast forwarding in time to a time yet in the future, in our near future, when the tribulation will be in full swing, first three and a half years having gone through, and now verse 6 focusing on the second three and a half years of when the nation of Israel is going to flee into the wilderness. Now, Jesus prophesied this. He said this in Matthew's gospel. He said, the day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. Now, He's speaking of Daniel's prophecy regarding the Antichrist in his temple. Here's what what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy that he gave. He said, the ruler, speaking of Antichrist, will make a treaty with the people for a period of one seven. That's a seven-year treaty. Um, But after half this time, after three and a half years, he's going to put an end to the sacrifices and offerings And as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out upon him. Antichrist is going to preside over the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, the reinstitution of of sacrifices taking place there um, for for the the Israelites in in the exercise of their religion. But three and a half years into it, he is going to be, you know, and they think the Antichrist is awesome for the first three and a half years. But then what does he do? He sets up a monument, an image to himself to be worshiped in the Holy of Holies. And then it, it, this doesn't go over very well with, with Israel, as you might imagine. <clears throat> Everybody at that point recognizes, well, this is a bad dude. And so that right there is the event that's going to send Israel fleeing 
into the wilderness to a place prepared by God. Now that as well has been well prophesied, um, an event that's going to take place. And most commentators believe the likely place where they're going to flee to is the rock city of Petra in Jordan. There's many reasons for that, which we don't have time to get into. Um, but just know that most commentators think that they, they flee to Petra. That's not the big deal about where they go. The big deal is that God himself is going to provide for them when they do. Verse 7, <clears throat> we continue. It says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, and nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. See, what happens, what this is describing is, is Satan and his demons being kicked out once and for all. They've already been kicked out of heaven in terms of heaven being their home. So heaven is not for them but uh, already at this point. But now this is describing a second event when even their access to heaven is denied. And so uh, there wasn't a place found for them in heaven any longer. Verse 9, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Here it is. So we know uh, back in verse 3, that's who he was talking about. Who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God uh, and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our Lord uh, God day and night has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. And therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Understand, listen, the devil and his demons, they were cast out of heaven thousands of years ago. Um, the earth is now their dwelling place, as I said, but according to Job chapters 1 and 2, the, Satan still has access to heaven. Put it on the screen for you, but in Job chapter 1, uh, describes one of those interactions. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God uh, came to present themselves before the Lord. Uh, the phrase sons of God, by the way, is used in the Old Testament to describe angelic beings. We see it used that way in Genesis 6 and in Job 38 and here in, in Job chapter 1. And so <clears throat> these angelic beings, they came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. Uh, which differentiates him from, uh, from the, the good angelic beings. It's, he's an angelic being, but he's of a separate category. And the Lord says to Satan, from where do you come? Kind of like, what are you doing here? And Satan answers the Lord, and he says to him, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And so the fact that these angels come and present themselves before God, it shows us very clearly that the fallen angelic beings have access to the presence of God. Now, we just read that that's going to change, that even their access is going to be cut off, but right now, they have access to the throne of God. And what is it that Satan does in his access to the throne of God? Well, according to Zechariah chapter 3, he accuses the brethren. And that's, in fact, what we read in verse 10. It's, it, they say, um, uh, now salvation, 
uh, and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for, here it is, the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. See, here's the thing. The enemy is the great accuser. And he operates in heaven. He stands in heaven accusing the saints before God. But he also operates in your life accusing you. You hear his voice say, you're a loser. You're a blow it. You can't, you can't go to God now because you did this or because you did that. And he just constantly is, is the accuser. And the Bible calls him a liar. And Satan lies to us and we buy it hook, line, and sinker. When he tells us that we're a loser, when he tells us that we're no good, when he tells us you can't overcome that sin, when he says you're a disgrace and, and God doesn't love you, um, and, and all of these things, you might as well give up, you might as well take your life, you might as well, whatever it is, he's the accuser and it's all a package of lies. And so this is what he does. Now Zechariah is, uh, also describes him as the accuser of the brethren. Zechariah was a prophet of God And God gave him a vision of heaven. And in his vision, God allowed Zechariah to see uh, Yeshua, the high priest, praying and standing before God. Really insightful interaction here. Put it on the screen for you. Here's Here's the vision and the description of it. Zechariah says, Then the angel showed me Yeshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. The accuser, Satan, was there at the angel's right hand. That's a picture of God. Uh, making accusations against Yeshua. And the Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusations, Satan. Yes, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. This man is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. Now, what he's saying right there, if you've ever taken a stick that's been burning in a fire and you take it out, what is it? It's, it's cooked. It's charbroiled. It doesn't look so good. And it's it's being consumed, right? And this is what the Lord says to Satan is he goes, look, Yeshua here is like that. He's, he's you know, he's, the world has, has chewed him up and spit him out and he's been plucked, as it were, from the fire. He, you know, thing, he was, <laughs> he's just, his life literally being smoked, you know? And I, and I pulled this and pulled him out and here he is by the skin of his teeth. He's been worked over. He's like a, you know, a drowned rat just pulled out, a, just not, he's all the worse for wear. And he says, this, he's like that. But listen, he says, it tells us then, Yeshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. Metaphorically, it's a picture of the fact that Yeshua's got no business standing before God in and of himself. His clothes are filthy. The Bible says, your righteousness is as filthy rags before God. And Satan heaps on and he accuses and he says, you are a sinner. You're a blow it. You got, I mean, you better clean up your life if you want to go to God. And so listen, it's telling us here, God says, yeah, this guy's life literally smoked. He's like, a, he's like a burning ember that's been pulled out of the fire. His clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. And so the angel said to the other standing there, take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Yeshua, he said, see, I have taken away your sins and now I'm giving you these fine clothes. Well, listen, Satan hated the whole scene, hates it. Hates it, hates it, hates it. He hates it when we come into God's presence. He hates it when we minister to the Lord in worship and in prayer. Hates it. He hates it when God deals graciously with us. 
And last week, you'll recall, in Revelation verse, or chapter 11, verse 18, it's, we read this. It said, the nations were filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. It's time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people and all who fear your name, from the least to the greatest. It's time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. Now, this is the celebration that's going on, on up in heaven. This is where judgment is executed and believers are rewarded. Satan hates it when believers are rewarded. And it's all, all this is taking place with Satan there in the presence of God. He's in heaven. He sees it all going down. And, and, and so there he is and, and, and all and everybody is there just as filthy as as, as we are in and of ourselves. But what happens is he sees God, um, instead of ruling against the church, he finds the church spotless and without blemish, just holy before him. Why? Because the church is clothed in white. The faith of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins in our place. And his righteousness is imputed to us. When God looks at us, he doesn't see us as the filthy sinners that we, in fact, are. No, he sees us as being holy and pure and without blemish. Why? Because we're hidden in Christ. Because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And so he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. Literally, we are clothed in Christ. And he looks at us through his son, and he says, you're holy, you're blemish, you're without spot, you're without wrinkle. Satan there being the accuser, he watches all this go down. What happens? He loses it. Apparently, he goes ballistic. All war just breaks out in heaven. And what you have here is Michael and his angels, well, they turn bouncer all of a sudden. They're like, everybody out. This is done. You guys are out. You're out of here, you know, kind of deal. And that's what we read here. So this is the battle to where this goes down. And so verse 13, we read, now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, that place that God had prepared for Israel, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, that's three and a half years, uh, from the presence of the serpent. So you have Israel here, Satan has been cast to the earth. He no longer has access to the throne of God. And now what does he do is he turns his attention to God's kids. And he says, okay, you know what? I'm going to attack them. And so God's going, God here is taking you know, the, the, the Jews out of, out of Jerusalem there. And he's hiding them, uh, quite possibly in the rock city of Petra. And, and you know, they, it says uh, there in verse 13 that, there were, um, or verse 14, that she was given two wings of a great eagle. And we don't know exactly what, what uh, in particular that is, but we know in general what that is. It's just that God himself gives them flight and escape from the Antichrist. Some commentators look at this and they're like, hey, you know, uh, the eagle is very symbolic in America and maybe these, this is an American airlift that's going to, you know, rescue these people. Um, total conjecture and, and who can know. But the point again here is that it's God who gives them this flight. Um, and so the, the serpent, verse 15, spewed water 
out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood uh, which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. So whatever this is, it's symbolic language of you know, the, the end, as Jesus said, coming like a flood. And so whether this is a flood of troops or a flood of you know, you know, armies or whatever it is, the point here is that God protects him. The earth swallows up this flood. Verse 17, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, with Israel, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring... Who are her offspring? Well, he further defines it here. Who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. What I want you to see here is the pattern. There is a pattern. Satan's MO is, if nothing, it's consistent. And what we see here, you know, is how, uh, you know, he leads this rebellion in heaven. A third of the angels side with him. He's cast out of heaven as his home. He's cast down to the earth. Um, on the earth, he then begins attacking God's children. He, he goes after Adam and Eve. He tempts Pharaoh in Egypt to wipe out the Jews. He, he tempts Haman to destroy the Jews. He, he tempts Saul to try and kill David through whom, you know, Jesus and the, the line of the Messiah would come. Um, he tempts Israel's neighbors to attack him. Uh, he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. And on through the ages, you look at Hitler, you look at all the surrounding nations that hate Israel with a passion. Jordan and Egypt and Iran and, and you know, Syria and all those <coughs> neighbors around them. There's a reason why they want to cast them into the sea. It's a satanic hatred. Even to the latest UN resolution looking to call Israel an apartheid state, that, that is satanic at its roots. That's, that's Satan attacking God's children. Now, here now, in the last days of, tri- of the tribulation process, it's, it's just more of the same. <clears throat> Satan's access to heaven has been cut off. God supernaturally protects Israel from his wrath. And so what's he do? He turns to her offspring. Right, He turns to the, the tribulation believers in Jesus Christ. Here's the point. All of this, just, just explanation and, and looking forward prophetically, let's get the application. Okay, Application for today. With all of this, Satan hates your guts. He hates you with a passion. He wants you dead. He wants you dead. He's like Al Capone. He wants you dead. He wants your family dead. He wants your pet dead. He wants, I mean, he hates you. And so, and why? Because he hates God. He hates Israel. God's, God's chosen. And he hates you. Peter said this. He said, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So here's what Peter says we are to do. He says, resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Two key words there. The first one is resist. It means to set against, to stand against. You need to to take a stand is the idea. And, And then the second key word is this word steadfast. It means to be immovable. I'm going to take a stand and I'm not going to be moved. But notice how you are to be steadfast. Peter says, be steadfast in the faith. Be steadfast in 
the faith. In other words, look, this is impossible for you to be immovable and steadfast in your own efforts. In your own white knuckle, do good, try harder, I'm going to be steadfast. No, you're not. You won't be steadfast. Your life proves to you that you're not going to be steadfast. The only way we can be steadfast is to be steadfast in the faith. And with that in mind, I want you to look back at verse 11, and this is where we're going to camp out for the rest of the message. Verse 11, it's talking about the saints in heaven. And it says this, they overcame him, who? Satan. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Listen, there's three elements of faith here. And these three elements of faith are how we overcome Satan's attacks, okay? So let's, let's, let's break that down. Three elements of faith to overcoming Satan's attack. The first one, you're taking notes right now, the blood of the lamb. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. This is the doctrine of atonement. Uh, the idea, hey, Jesus died on the cross for our sin in our place, okay? And, and he's made atonement for our sin. Now, a lot of times, our attitude as far as the atonement of, of, of God for our sins, that, that Jesus died for my sin, a lot of times, practically, we can take that and it can become sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans, you know, that should I, should I sin that grace may abound? And he basically goes on, just in my paraphrase, that's stupid. It doesn't work that way. Okay, so, 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 but a lot of times, functionally, that's what we do. We go, oh, I'm forgiven. Oh, wink at this sin, I'm forgiven. Oh, sweep that sin under the rug, I'm forgiven. Listen to what C.H. Spurgeon said. He said, these saints used the doctrine of atonement. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins in your place. They used the doctrine of atonement not as a pillow to rest their weariness, but as a weapon to subdue their sin. They used it as a weapon to subdue uh, their sin. In other words, Jesus' shed blood equips us offensively to subdue sin. How so? First point, first, first point under this idea of the blood of the lamb and that is this, his victory is our victory. His victory is our victory. We looked at this last week in Revelation chapter 11. This idea that, look, we don't have to accept victory on Satan's terms. He says to Jesus, hey, accept victory on my terms. I'll give you all the kingdoms if you bow down and worship me. Jesus is like, wrong, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to worship the Lord. I'm going to trust in him. And then what do we see? We see Jesus being given the kingdoms of the earth, the very thing that Satan offered him on his terms. No, Jesus got him, but he got him on God's terms. And, and so we don't have to accept victory on Satan's terms. By the same token, we don't have to accept defeat on Satan's terms either. You know, you have a friendship relationship, and we talked about this last week, and, and it goes sour, and, and what Satan does is he says, Write them off as a loss, man. That, that, this, is, this is just, they've hurt you too bad. This is just, the wound runs too deep. It's just easier to trash the relationship. And so, hey, just accept defeat on Satan's terms. You were looking for a friend when you found them. Blow them off. Go find yourself another friend. God says, no, no, no. You got division with your brother. You go to your brother. You work it out. And, and, and by the way, if your brother's got something against you, I want you to go to your brother and work it out as well. And he puts the onus on both parties in every instance. Why? Because he's more concerned about the relationship than he is about what divides us. And so, hey, 
we got to understand Jesus' victory is our victory. I don't have to accept defeat on Satan's terms. I don't have to accept victory on Satan's terms. I accept victory on Jesus' terms. He conquered Satan's sin and death. And if I place my faith in him, I can conquer Satan's sin and death. And so that strengthens me offensively that I can go, look, I don't need to <coughs> be faced with this problematic relationship crisis and, and, and go, yeah, you know, this is too big for me. No, I can overcome that by the blood of the Lamb. His victory is my victory. Now, another way offensively that we can apply the blood of the Lamb is that, listen, His shed blood is a symbol of His love. It's a symbol of his love. The Bible says that God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, when I remember this truth, it empowers me to reject Satan's lies. Paul told the Romans this. He says, God's kindness leads us to repentance. God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. Repentance. See, the, 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 the issue here is to go, hey, wait a minute. Um, not only is his victory my victory, but look, his shed blood is a symbol of his love. I should not behave this way because God loves me and he's given himself for me. And, and, and because of his love for me, I don't want to turn around and treat him that way. And if I meditate on that, that's another way that the blood of the lamb can be a way that I can overcome Satan. Hey, the blood of the lamb, his shed blood is a symbol of his love. But listen, it also reminds us of the cost of sin. It's another way that the blood of the lamb helps us to overcome sin and, and to, to live offensively rather than, rather than defensively or reactively or whatever way you want to put it. Listen, his shed blood reminds us of the cost of sin. The wages of sin is death. And, and who's death? Well, Jesus is death. Paul said this to the Corinthians. He said, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. And so again, I can, I can go, wait a minute. Jesus' shed blood equips me offensively to, to subdue sin by, you know, remembering, man, Jesus died for this thing I'm about to do. So, so I don't need to relate to it as, hey, thanks for the free pass, Jesus, for me to live any way I want. I need to relate to it with the attitude that says, but do I really want to do that thing that cost my Lord and Savior his life, the suffering on the cross? David Guzik sums all of this up, this whole idea. I love the quote. He says, we use the blood of the lamb in spiritual warfare, not as a Christian abracadabra. Not as if chanting the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus uh, is going to keep Satan away like garlic is said to keep vampires away. He says, rather our understanding, our apprehension, our focus, may I say our obsession with the death of Jesus on the cross as our substitute wins the battle. Love that quote. Now the second element of our faith by which we overcome Satan's attack, not just the blood of the lamb, but secondly, by the word of our testimony. By the word of our testimony. Listen, the word of our testimony overcomes Satan's lies. It overcomes his deception. 
See, when we remember how God has worked in our life, how he's been faithful in our life, well, then it protects us from believing future lies that he would tell. The, the most obvious example I can think of is David and Goliath. Everybody's saying to David, well, you can't fight this giant. This, this, this giant has been killing people since he was a kid. And as it turns out, you're just a kid. By the way, you're the run to the litter, David. You ain't got nothing going on on this guy. And so what does David do? Does he listen to those lies? Does he say, oh, you're right, I can't overcome this Goliath? No, he says, hey, I've had other battles in my life before this where God has shown himself faithful. I had a situation where I was tending my father's sheep. By the way, sucky job, and, and it just was horrible. And, and, you know, and, and my dad didn't think very much of me. He stuck me out in the field with his sheep. Like, like all, every Jew knew that that was like a really bad thing. Nobody liked shepherds. They were considered like, you know, thieves and, and the, the scum of the earth, you know. Oh, and my dad sends me out to tend the sheep. But you know what? I was out there. I was, it was me and God. It had to be me and God. You know, couldn't really depend on pops. And, and there I was. And wouldn't you know it? A bear attacks me. What'd I do? I fought and I overcame it. And you know what else? A lion attacked me while I was out there too. Dad, can, can you get somebody else to do this job? Like, come on. And a lion attacks me. What happened then? God delivered me then too. See, and what David did, it was the word of his testimony. He said, God delivered me from a lion. He delivered me from a bear. And I know this, this is a giant and it's a lot, <coughs> a lot bigger. It's got the whole Israeli army quaking in their boots right now. Nobody will fight this guy. But he says, this guy? He's just going to be like the lion and the bear. It's the word of his testimony. See, that's the thing that we need to keep in mind. We need to remember our past wilderness experiences when we're in the next wilderness experience. Maybe you're in a wilderness experience today. Maybe it's overwhelmed you. Maybe you've got some Goliath that you're facing and it's just got you completely and totally hampered, handcuffed, distressed, distraught, overwhelmed. I would encourage you, listen, remember... What, what your last wilderness victory was. What's the word of your testimony? How has God been faithful to you in the past? I guarantee he'll be faithful to you now. And so we overcome him by the blood of the lamb. We overcome him by the word of our testimony. And thirdly, listen, they did not love their lives to the death. This is the third element of faith by which we overcome Satan's attacks. By the blood of the lamb, by the word of our testimony. And thirdly, they did not love their lives to the death. I love the way the New Living Translation translates this verse. It says, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They didn't fear their death. Paul, you know, I mentioned him last week. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, they're like, Paul, we're going to throw you in prison. We're going to throw away the keys. Like, great, to live is Christ. Okay, uh, we're going to kill you. To die is gain. I mean, you can't do anything to a guy like that. And, 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 you know, it's been said, when God calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And this, is, this is the idea, man. What did Paul say? He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus said this, he said, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. Listen, maybe today God's calling you to lose your life. And maybe your testimony has been 
man, you've, you've loved your life too much to, to, to shrink from this, this idea of losing it. Yeah, I always talk to dads and, and, and uh, tell them this story about a father and his son, and they're on a fishing trip, and, and you know, they, they have a, an accident that happens, and everybody's swimming for their lives for sure, and dad could have made it, but his son was stuck in the current. Dad stays with them. They're in the frigid waters of Alaska, and basically, they're never seen again. The last they see them, they're floating arm in arm out into the, out into the ocean, and they never recover their bodies, and a horrible story, but, but as a dad, you go, yeah, I would die for my son. Absolutely, I'd die for him. And I like to say, well, if you would die for them, how about this? How, how come you're not living for them? And the attitude comes back to this idea of shrinking from death. See, we, we don't want to die to ourselves. We want to we live our lives in such a way that, that you know, I'm not willing to endure, to go through that thing which is killing me. But they didn't love their lives to the death. I close uh, with this story, this attitude uh, here. Um, there were, uh, my wife was reading a book, and uh, it was talking about, the, it's, called, it's called Outrageous Grace. And, and it tells the story of a gal named Grace Fabian and her husband, Edmund. They were... Um, on the mission field in Papua New Guinea. They're working with Wycliffe, Wycliffe Bible translators. Funny, we, we have missionaries from our church that are in Papua New Guinea with Wycliffe right now. But they were there, and, and her husband was translating the Bible into the Nabok language. And he was in the middle of, on, 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 it was April 29th, 1993, he was in the middle of, of, of translating uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And, and there on that day, a Nabaki tribesman crept into their house and buried an axe right into the middle of that guy's skull. And his wife, Grace, she heard some, some noise. She saw this guy run by her window. She calls out to her husband. She goes into to the office where her husband was. And the axe is still there in his, in his head. And he's just he's laying in, in a pool of blood. He's dead. I mean, just overwhelming. Well, the story gets worse because they end up finding the guy. They try the guy. Evidence is overwhelming. As Marsha Clark would say, there was an ocean of evidence. And they found the guy not guilty. And, and so, uh, you know, here's this wife now, husband murdered. The murderer gets off. And then God speaks to her heart and he says, you know what? Grace, I want you to go show that man Grace. I want you to bake him a cake and I want you to go share the love of Jesus with him. And, and, and how many of y'all are just like, I'll bake him a cake with a gun in it that I can pull out. And So she does it. She bakes him a cake. She goes, she ministers the gospel to this guy. He gets saved. He gives his life to Christ. The book is called Outrageous Grace, and you're like, it is outrageous. It's outrageous that, 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 that this would transpire. But listen, Grace didn't love her life to the death. She, 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 she was willing to die for the Lord's sake. And, and, you know, the word of God, listen, it, it wasn't just mere words to grace. It was the very words of, of God, the very words of God to her soul, 
I told you her husband was translating 1 Corinthians when he was murdered. Do you know what verse he was translating? Put on screen for you. Here's what he was translating the moment he was murdered, what his wife read, and what motivated her to obey God. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. These saints, they didn't love their lives to the death. Same word, by the way. It's the word agape. They didn't love their flesh unconditionally. No, they loved God unconditionally. 